Good morning, everyone. My name is Rusty Hawkins. I am a professor of humanities and history in the Honors College here at Indiana Wesleyan. And it is my, Honors College, that's right. That is my uh, privilege and honor to introduce our speaker today. I have been looking forward to this chapel for a very long time. In fact, I think the only people who are looking forward to this chapter, chapel more than me are probably my students because now I can stop talking about this chapel in class. Um, our speaker today is Dr. Christina Cleveland, who is a social psychologist and professor of reconciliation studies at Bethel University in Minnesota. Christina is a very, very highly sought-after uh, teacher and speaker, and uh, we are very fortunate and blessed to have her with us today. Christina is the author of Disunity in Christ, Uncovering the Hidden Forces that Keep Us Apart. And in this book, Dr. Cleveland asks a very simple and yet very complex question. If we as followers of Christ are called to be one and called to be unified, why is it that we are so often divided? Why is it that we are so isolated uh, along socioeconomic or gender or, or racial lines? Uh, and so she, in this book, unpacks that question for us and gives us some answers about how we might overcome those divisions. And she'll be some, sharing some of that information with us this morning in chapel. But Dr. Cleveland is also doing double duty for us today. Not only is she speaking this morning here in chapel, this evening at 7 p.m. in the pack, she'll be giving the first ever Luther Lee lecture here at Indiana Wesleyan University. And I'm sure there's at least one, of two, one or two of you right now uh, thinking to yourself, why would we have a lecture about Superman's nemesis here at Indiana Wesleyan? Just to be clear, that's, that's Lex Luthor. Luther Lee is someone entirely different. So come tonight at 7 p.m. to hear who Luther Lee was and then hear more from Dr. Cleveland as she gives our first ever Luther Lee lecture. Would you all join me in welcoming Dr. Christina Cleveland? Thank you, Dr. Hawkins. Oh, it is a pleasure to be here, and um, thank you for having me. And I, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning here. We're going to have a real conversation today about a topic that uh, Americans are sort of spectacularly bad at talking about, and I'd argue maybe even American Christians are even worse at talking about. We are going to talk about race in America and in the church. And so before we even get into the conversation and get into uh, the, real, the real issues that are at heart, and I promise you tonight will be even more real than this morning, I want to just start by naming a couple things, a couple reasons why this conversation is hard. One reason is that it's just plain awkward. And it's okay to just name that. You know, when I was in high school, I went to a boarding school in New Hampshire, and I'd grown up in California. When I was 15, I went to this boarding school. And the vast majority of the students were white at this school. And most of them had grown up in settings where they hadn't interacted a lot with people of color, like myself. And I became really good friends with this guy named John. Um, I think he was a white kid from Long Island. And um, I think we became friends because we both love college basketball. I'm a huge Cal fan. Um, and so we kind of got together about that. But it became increasingly clear to me as we were friends that he hadn't really had very many black friends. It was just sort of obvious. And so one day I was joking with him and I said, John, I think I'm your only black friend. And he said, no, that's not true. My maid is black. And I was like, oh my God, I, I can't believe you just said that. And also I would love to know if your maid thinks that you guys are friends. I would love to know that. 
Um, but that's just an example of someone I was interacting with. Okay, now, one day, I was out in my dorm, and I was uh, playing ping pong with one of my friends, and who's, who, her name was Kai, she's black. And John walked into our, my dorm, I guess he was looking for someone else, and I thought, oh, this is great. I will introduce John and Kai, and they, they need to know each other because they're both good friends of mine. Also, I can double John's black friends right here in this moment just by introducing him to Kai. And so I said, John, meet Kai. Kai, meet John. And John says, Kai, nice to meet you. Kai says, likewise, glad to meet you. And he said, oh, wait a second. No, I already know you. You're in my math class. And Kai says, no, actually, I don't think I'm in your math class. He's like, no, you're for sure in my math class. I know it. Now, at this school, they use the Socratic method for teaching, so there are only like 10 people in your classes. So you really should know who's in your math class. Like, you really should. And he was like, no, you're in my math class. She said, nope, I'm not. I know where I am. I'm not. And he said, well, some black girl who looks just like you is in my math class. Awkward, right? Now, it's funny because I see this, the people of color in the room smiling and nodding their heads, and the white people are like, uh, awkward, do I laugh, do I frown, like, what do I do, right? <laughs> That's what's hard about conversations about race, right? There's a 100% chance that you're going to say something stupid. 100% chance. There's a 100% chance you're probably going to be offended at some point. We're really bad at interacting. We're really bad at interacting with people who are different than us. So, in this conversation, we need to just name it. This is awkward. We need to have a lot of grace. We need to give a lot of grace. We need to ask God for a lot of grace. And hopefully by the end of our conversation, you'll understand why it's worth pushing through the awkwardness in order to have this conversation. Another thing I want to name before we get started so I want to name that this conversation brings up lots of issues of shame. Oftentimes we start talking about race, and if you're part of the majority culture, you're white, it's really, it's really easy to feel like you're, you're being attacked, or that there's something wrong with you, or that your ignorance makes you bad, or not worthy of being part of this conversation. And on the flip side, if you're a person of color, sometimes this can feel very painful, because this is a conversation maybe you've tried to have, or you've wanted to have, and you haven't found the community interested in having that conversation. So there can be pain and a lot of shame, and I think it's worth naming that, too, before we go in. And I want to say a couple things about that. One, shame is not from God, ever, ever, ever. Ever. Every single person in this room was created in the image of God. And so if you're starting to feel that shame, I would say, actually, we're going to pray against that. But I would also say, shame, go away. God has something for me here this morning. Because I really do believe that we have this grand narrative that we get to be a part of, where we get to be part of this new reality that Christ inaugurated in his resurrection, where he's bringing people from all different backgrounds together within the family of God. And we can either participate in that, or we can slink away in shame or in fear. And I think we should, we should charge through. So I want to pray for us. And I actually have never done this before, but I just kind of got this sense that I'm supposed to do it. I kind of want to start with all of us participating in this Ignatian contemplative prayer, and then, um, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. So the way this works is I will just say a phrase, and then I'll give you um, 
um, an opportunity to repeat after me, and then I'll wait a few moments so you can kind of let it just sink in, and then I'll move on to another phrase, and you'll see. It's, it's pretty easy to follow along. Okay, so here's the first one. Just repeat after me. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Father, friend, creator. Oh, it's okay. I'll just pray. Thanks, though. You guys are very participatory. I appreciate that. <laughs> Leader, coach, counselor, comforter, spirit, savior, redeemer. The God who makes all things new. The God who is full of intimacy and laughter and adventure and grace. We invite you into this room. We acknowledge your presence. We ask you to come and deliver us from false thinking, deliver us from shame, deliver us from fear so that we can draw near to you into what you have for us. Holy Spirit, haunt us. Haunt us with your plan for reality. And challenge us and stretch us and comfort us in only the way that you can. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I'm going to dive right into uh, one of my favorite passages, and then we'll talk about what the implications are for the family of God and, and really for all of reality. Um, I'm in Philippians 2, and I'm going to read from The Voice, which I know is not a real translation, um, but I'm going to read from it anyway because I love the way that Paul talks um, about unity in the family of God. So he says in Philippians 2, 1, if you find any comfort from being in the anointed, if God's love brings you some encouragement, if you experience true companionship with the Spirit, if God's tenderness and mercy fill your heart, then brothers and sisters, here is one thing that would complete my joy. Come together as one in mind and spirit and purpose, sharing in the same love. Don't let selfishness and prideful agendas take over. Embrace true humility and lift your heads to extend love to others. Get beyond yourselves and protecting your own interests. Be sincere and secure your neighbor's interests 
first. That whole second part, don't let selfishness and prideful agendas and stuff. We'll get to that tonight. This morning, I want to focus on this beginning piece. And I'll read it again. If you find any comfort for being in the anointed Jesus, if God's love brings you some encouragement, if you experience true companionship with the Spirit, if God's tenderness and mercy fill your heart, then, brothers and sisters, here is one thing that would complete my joy. Come together as one in mind and spirit and purpose, sharing in the same love. Wow. So one of the things I love about this passage is that it's written to the Philippians. And the Philippians were this extraordinarily diverse church. A lot of church historians believe they might have been the most diverse early Christian church. And so you had racial differences, you had class differences, you had gender differences. They were, compl- they were all sorts of different people in this one church. And Paul is saying, if you truly, 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 truly get God's love, then that should be demonstrated. The evidence of that should be you guys are united, even in the midst of all your differences. Paul's acknowledging that. And Paul's a pretty brilliant, like, early Trinitarian theologian, actually, because even in this first sentence here, he mentions all three aspects, all three members of the Trinity. He says, if you get any comfort for being in the anointed, that's Jesus. If God's love, God the Father's love brings you some encouragement, if you experience true companionship with the Spirit, there he's kind of like already mentioning and using as a framework the love of the Trinity as an example of the type of unity that he believes the Philippians are supposed to be living into. And ever since the fourth century, Trinitarian theologians have been thinking about this concept of unity within the Trinity, and they call it perichoresis. That's the Greek word for it. And it's basically this idea that the members of the Trinity indwell each other. To be so much so that they begin to identify with each other and they only make sense in light of their relationship with each other. And so the Father is only the Father to the extent that the Son dwells in the Father. And the Spirit is only the Spirit to the extent that the Spirit is indwelled by the Father. There's just this like interpenetrating or, in, or mutually indwelling or embracing identities. It's beautiful to think about how intertwined they are. And that's what Paul is calling the Philippians to, and that's what he's calling us to in the sense that we're a really diverse church too, just like the Philippians. Now what he says though is if you get this love, if you get this Trinitarian love that's all mutual and intertwined, then that's how you're going to relate to other people particularly other members of the family of God. So my identity as a black woman has to be informed by my Hmong friends and my Korean friends and my male friends and my friends who come from other socioeconomic statuses. I'm only a member of the family of God to the extent that I'm connected to people who are different than me, and I'm sharing brain space with them, right? He says, be of one mind. That doesn't mean you have to agree on everything, but it means that we need to be looking to see, gosh, what is their perspective on life? What's it like to be an undocumented immigrant? What's it like to be male? What's it like to be um, someone who's Japanese? What, how am I sharing brain space with people who are different than me? How can I be one in mind and spirit and purpose. 
That's a tall order that we're called to, a really tall order, and it's really hard to do that. Incredibly hard. And I want to talk a little bit about why it's so hard to do that. Why is it hard to be one with people who are so different from us? Why is it hard for us to even identify with them, much less share brain space, kind of get inside their head and allow them to get inside our head and inhabit our experiences? And there are a lot of reasons why it's hard, but I'm just going to focus on just a, one big reason this morning. We'll talk about another reason tonight. And one reason is because of just the way that we categorize each other and we categorize our world. So not even looking at people first, but we categorize everything. And it's a natural thing that we do. It's something that I think a lot about as a social psychologist. So we categorize everything, right? Historians categorize time into eras. Biologists classify animals into different species. Political scientists might categorize um, all states into red states or blue states, right? We categorize everything. And it's really helpful for us to do this. It helps us save a lot of our precious mental energy. We're cognitive misers. Right? We don't have a lot of energy to be thinking about everything. And so we like to rely on our categories to make assumptions about things. So for example, I walked into this um, auditorium this morning and I saw this podium for the first time and I had never seen this podium before. Now think about it. Normally when you come across a novel object, you want to take time to investigate it and figure out what the heck is this thing? Is it something, is it safe? What should I do with it? Is it, should I eat it? Um, is it going to spontaneously self-combust? What is this, right? But I, that's not what I did when I walked in and saw this podium. I didn't try to interview the podium. What did I do? I made an assumption about what it was based on my category of podiums. I have this category and it saves all this mental energy for me to just see something that remotely fits that category. Oh, I haven't seen this podium before, but it kind of looks like other podiums I've seen before, so I can make an assumption about what it's going to be able to do for me. And this works the same way with humans, too, right? We, we have social categories. So, for example, I have this car. His name is Prince Albert. He is awesome. I love him. He's a little red scion. I bought Prince Albert about three months before I decided to move to Minnesota. And so Prince Albert, um, he, I bless his heart, he can't drive in the snow. He really can't. Like, I like to think that his spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak, you know, because he can't go, like, he can't go and he can't stop on ice. We're just slipping and sliding everywhere. And in Minnesota, it's winter for most of the year, and it's snowy for most of the year. And so this is really problematic. And me and Prince Albert get stuck in the alley behind my house like once a week. And his wheels are just spinning. He can't go. I don't know how to drive him so that he goes. I mean, we're just stuck. Now, I happen to live right next door to the police station in my neighborhood, which is interesting. I'll say that. Um, but one of the things that... I've learned is that the police officers, as they're going out to their cars in the lot, they will often see me and little red Prince Albert just spinning and stuck in the snow, and oftentimes they will come and push us out and kind of save the day, and I really appreciate that. And they, they kind of just glance over my direction every once in a while just to make sure that me and Prince Albert aren't, aren't over there stuck. Now, because... I've had these ongoing interactions with the police officers who are my neighbors. I've started to develop a category for them. So much so that one, one time, 
I was stuck recently in my back alley, and it was really late at night, and me and Prince Albert were just spinning, and we weren't going anywhere, and I saw this hulking figure kind of backlit, so I couldn't see who this person was walking towards me, and I automatically made an assumption. I said, that's a police officer coming to help me. Category. Right? I wasn't scared. I wasn't wondering who's this lurking figure coming towards me. I knew it's the direction of the police station. Someone's coming over to help me based on my category of police officers. Now, everyone's going to have a different category based on their experiences, right? I mean, your category depends on your experiences. And in this case, mine have been somewhat positive, particularly with respect to my car. So we have categories even for people, which is mostly helpful. Now, the downside to this, though, is that just like any other shortcut, categories can lead us astray. And so one of the downsides of using categories to perceive people is that sometimes we're going to make mistakes. And one of the mistakes that we automatically make when we categorize, and this is how it affects the way that we interact with people who are different than us, is the first mistake we make is we start to make a distinction between us and them. So instead of it just all of us being us, humans, now we have an us versus them. Blacks and whites, Asians and Hispanics, men and female, Wesleyans and free Methodists, Taylor students and Indiana Wesleyan students, right? Us versus them. And the first thing we say is they are all the same, whoever they is. And that's the mistake that my friend John made, right? All black girls look the same. That's why he was able to so easily confuse my friend Kai with my friend Addie, who we found out was actually in his math class. And Addie and Kai look nothing alike. They just both happen to be black, right? And so they are all the same. All liberals are the same. All conservatives are the same. All Taylor students are the same. All Southerners are the same. All Minnesotans are the same. They are all the same. Now, meanwhile, we are all unique and varied and different, and there's a lot of diversity within us, so don't you dare categorize us, because we're all unique, but they are all the same. Now, I will say that even though my friend John made this mistake as a white man, he, it's not only white people who, who make this mistake, right? It's not only white people who engage in this effect that we call the outgroup homogeneity effect. It goes both ways. So I don't know if you guys are familiar, but something that I refer to in my book, and it's kind of is one of my favorite websites, is this website called Stuff White People Like. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. There's this guy, it's a white dude, who um, made a list of everything that white people like. And then he's writing it um, sort of tongue-in-cheekily um, color, to people of color, right? So he's saying, here's the list of all the things that white people like. That way, if you're a person of color and you want to get in good with white people, all you have to do is just mention the things on this list, and then they will like you, okay? So he's really relying on this outgroup homogeneity effect, right? As a social psychologist, this is fascinating to me, and as a black person, it's really funny, okay? So <laughs> on this list, he's saying things like, um, you know, white people, they like assists in basketball, okay? Or like, um, <laughs> or, <laughs> or white people like, um, 
religions their parents don't belong to, uh, white people like making you feel bad about not being outside, um, all sorts of things, farmers markets, Priuses. Okay, so <laughs> one of the things that I really, one of the funniest ones to me on this list is he says white people like wearing outdoor performance clothes. Okay, you know how like white people are always wearing like a Patagonia jacket even if they're not climbing a mountain, you know? So that's what he's talking about. So. He says, this is, and so he's explaining this to people like me, right? So I'm not part of the category of white people. So it's easy for me to just look at this list and be like, yep, that's exactly how white people are, right? That's the way this dynamic works. Okay, so he's explaining why white people like outdoor performance clothes. And he says, the main reason why white people like these clothes is that it allows them to believe that at any moment they could find themselves at a with a tule rack on top of their car headed to a national park. It could be 4 p.m. on a Saturday when they might get a call. Hey, man, you know what we need to do? Kayak, then camping right now. I'm on my way to get you. There is no time to change clothes. <laughs> Though it is unlikely that they will receive this call, white people hate the idea of missing an opportunity to enjoy outdoor activities because they weren't wearing the right clothes. If you plan on spending part of your weekend with a white person, it is strongly recommended that you purchase a jacket or some sort of high-performance t-shirt, which is like a regular shirt, but just a lot more expensive. <laughs> okay, so now, if you're a white person and you're reading this, or you're even looking over his list, and you're like, hey, not all white people are like that, right? Touche, of course. You're part of the in-group, right? And so you're thinking we're all diverse and varied. Now, if you're me and you're reading this, you're like, I'm thinking, yeah, the three white people I know wear North Face all the time. Yep, that's exactly how white people are, right? So they are all the same. We all fall into this trap simply by categorizing, simply by making us them distinctions. Now here's where it gets tricky and dark really quickly. And here's how I think it affects the family of God. Another way of saying they are all the same is they don't bring a lot of richness and variability to the table. We don't really need them because we're perceiving them in such an oversimplified way. One time I was helping a school just like um, Wesleyan, um, Indiana Wesleyan. Um, I was talking to a school, it's a Christian college, predominantly white, and the president and the board had called me in because I do a lot of kind of consulting and coaching, and they said, we have a problem. We have a problem attracting people of color it's, as students, as faculty. We have a really hard time retaining people of color once they do come here. Will you please come help us? And so I said, sure. And they said, well, um, Maybe we can come up with some sort of like diversity program to make this a more inclusive, welcoming environment for everybody, not just white people. And I said, all right, well, before we get going on this plan, it would probably make a lot of sense for me to interview or do some focus groups or surveys with the people of color who have been involved with the school. And uh, the president and the board said, great come up with a plan and then get back to us. Let us know how much it's going to cost, how much time it's going to involve. So I did that. I came up with this huge plan. I came back and they said, this is like a really good plan. And I said, thank you. And they said, it just seems like it's going to take up a lot of time and it's going to use up a lot of resources. And, um, and I said, yeah, it will. It's going to take, you know, it's going to be hard to track down all these people and get their feedback. 
And he said, the, the president said to me, a white male, he said, well, I mean, we could go through with the plan, um, or, we, or I could probably just tell you why people of color don't really want to be a part of this organization. And I was like, okay, let me get this straight. You're the white male leader of an organization that admittedly has a diversity problem. And he said, yes. And I said, and you think you can fix the diversity problem without actual input from diverse people? And he was like, well, when you put it that way, it sounds really bad. And I was like, yeah, because it is really bad. <laughs> and as we were talking, it, got, it became more and more clear this is a good guy. He didn't mean any harm. I think what he actually said was, in fact, harmful. But he didn't mean any harm. He had a good heart. But I think what he did was he fell into this trap that I've been talking about. They are all the same. We don't really need their input. What they bring to the table, what they offer, isn't as rich and diverse and varied as what we bring to the table. So I can approximate what they might think, even though I have no idea what it's like to be them. Or maybe we can just get one of them, a token, and that one person can speak for everybody. That's how easy it is for us to dishonor the image of God and people who are different than us by oversimplifying, by saying they are all the same, by making assumptions about what people's perspectives are going to be based on their group membership. And so it's one of those things where you have to stop and we have to say, wait, do I want to be a cognitive miser? Do I want to just fall into this trap that I'll automatically fall into? Or do I want to stop and do I want to think, how am I perceiving them? How am I even drawing distinctions between us and them. And what does that mean for the family of God? I'm running out of time, but I think I want to quickly move on to the second one, and we'll try to get as far as we can, and hopefully you can come back tonight. But another thing that automatically happens when we make these us-them distinctions, when we categorize, is not only do we say they are all the same and they don't bring much to the table, but we also convince ourselves that they do not want to have anything to do with us. And when it comes to unity, when it comes to taking that first step towards interacting with someone who's different than us, it doesn't really matter what they actually think about us. All that matters is what we think they think of us. And almost always, simply because we categorize, our first assumption is a very pessimistic assumption. We assume they don't want to know us. When all the research suggests that most of the time people do want to know us, right? It's the age-old question my students over at Bethel ask all the time. Why do all the black kids sit together in the cafeteria? My first response to that is usually, um, well, all the white kids sit together in a cafeteria too. Um, but it's just not as obvious because almost everyone here is white. Um, but the second part of that is, why are, are you making an assumption that they don't want to talk to you? Because if you are, research shows that that's just a natural consequence of categorizing, and it's probably overly pessimistic. And so we have to ask ourselves, why are we making that assumption? Where is it coming from? And when we have that, can we challenge ourselves to be cognitively generous, to step back and say, I'm actually going to put some real thought into this. 
rather than just assuming things about people, maybe I'm going to take that step and try to interact with someone who's different than me. That's just a little teeny tiny bit, and I hope you can come back tonight so we can talk a little bit more about some of these reasons why we have a hard time connecting with people who are different than us. Before, before you go and before you start packing up, college students, I'm a professor, so I, I see you. Um, <laughs> let's pray, all right? God, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for being the, the unifying God. Thank you for coming to earth, crossing so many barriers that divided us with you, from you, so that we could be together. May we follow in your footsteps. In Jesus' name, amen. Hold off before you guys head out. Yeah, can you give a hand for Dr. Cleveland? I have two quick announcements for you guys. Um, and I just, hold up, don't leave yet, don't leave yet. Hold on, people, this is great. Two announcements, guys. Um, Tonight, 7 o'clock in the pack, Dr. Cleveland's going to con continue this conversation. I'm excited. I want to hear more about the second reason and just learn more about this. Um, guys, you guys don't even realize the next two days this theme God is using of unity and talking about how we should relate as Christians in our community to each other just as we relate to God and his unity. And so tomorrow at 7 o'clock, or sorry, tonight at 7 o'clock, we're going to have that conversation with Dr. Cleveland again in the pack. And then tomorrow night is Breathe. Now, I know a lot of you guys need some more chapel credit. Let's be honest. All right. So please come. And we're going to continue and have this conversation about the unity of Christ and how the unity of the Trinity talks about a relationship with us as we are about to celebrate Easter this week. So you guys are sent out. Thank you so much. Please come tonight and tomorrow.